0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Today, we're bringing you the second episode of Scale, our new mini-series on the do's and don'ts for rapidly scaling startups. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear a series of conversations with people who've taken their companies through hyper-growth and have lived to tell the tale. This week, we sat down with Jay Simmons, the president of Atlassian. We actually had Jay on the podcast about four years ago. Since then, a lot has changed. Back then, Atlassian was just shy of a 1,000 employees with revenue of around about 500 million. Seems pretty successful, right? Well, today Atlassian's revenue tops a whopping 1 billion. So needless to say, if anyone knows about scaling a company, it's Jay. So the question is, how did Jay do it? Well, I think you'll find the answer is pretty surprising. No formal sales team. I'll let Jay explain everything. Jay, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, you're one of the few guests that we've actually had as a repeat guest in the podcast. So awesome. uh, thanks but for do I get back. like
1: a two timers jacket or something? Uh, you know, we,
0: like, we can we can arrange that. You Absolutely. know, like
1: the <laughs> SNL five timers club. You guys should have an intercom.
0: We'll uh, we'll look into it. Uh, so <laughs> I think it was probably about four or five years ago that you were on the podcast. So I'd love just to hear what you've been up to since.
1: Uh we just uh, kind of working on building the company.
0: Yeah, like you've acquired Trello since then. Any sort of other highlights over the past couple of years? Well, we've got kind of
1: new products. You know, we've continued to grow and scale the company and right. open new offices and added new people. And it's a whole mix of exciting stuff. But, you know, along with now the 3,000-plus Atlassians, we've just been focused in the intervening years since I last talked to Intercom and just continue to build and scale the culture in the company and and uh, creating more things that uh, hopefully delight more and more customers.
0: Sure. So specifically today, we wanted to talk to you about the uh, low-touch sales model. I know mm-hmm. this is something that has kind of been instrumental in in growing Atlassian. So just at a high level, could you describe what that low touch sales model is and why it's been so successful for Atlassian?
1: Well, so the, the bulk of the business has focused on kind of building a flywheel and the mm-hmm. flywheel begins with creating a great product that you know, early on, we talked about building a remarkable product, and we chose the word remarkable with intention because we wanted to build a product that people feel felt compelled to remark upon, and that would build word of mouth. But, it, you know, the flywheel begins with a great product that solves problems, um, meaningful problems for customers, that, uh, and then... You know, we try to remove as much friction in front of the customer's path as possible. And so the buying cycle for a lot of uh, evaluators and customers has been changing over the past 10 years with just the democratization of information on the Internet and kind of more accessibility. And so I think, you know, there was a study, uh, maybe it was an HBR study article that talked about how, you know, 64% of kind of the buy cycle is completed largely by, you know, the evaluator, the the prospective customer. So, our flywheel kind of has focused on, you know, removing as much from the customer's path as possible. Mm-hmm. Tell them how much it's going to cost, and you know, help answer the most frequently asked questions, uh, and then combine that with incredible service at the other end. And so, what we say to an evaluator is. We've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to discover the capability in this product, for us to onboard you in the way that the the best equipped sales engineer would for you to discover whether or not this is going to solve the problems that you're looking to hire the product for. if you get stuck at all, like let us know, and we'll bend over backwards to help answer whatever questions you're stuck with right. and And so that group we we call them early on product advocates, uh, are really focused on, removing that extra little bit of friction from the customer's path. And then we also have complemented that with an outside indirect channel and so there's kind of a class of problems largely for either non-English speaking customers or larger enterprise customers that you might need a little bit more handholding, consulting, you might want to understand, boy, how is this Alassian product going to replace or map to these other things that I have that kind of really unique and custom to my my company. And so that's been an important part of the sales model. But the the bulk of the flywheel, that kind of high velocity sort of low touch mm-hmm. comes at investment in kind of great product kind of improved, you know, onboarding, and then constantly understanding, like, what are the pieces, the speed bumps that customers are getting stuck around? And can we remove those?
0: Right. So low touch definitely doesn't mean no touch, I guess. Like, there's still inputs from Atlassian side to sort of keep this sort of virtuous flywheel. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, 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 you know, we're, I think what we've done a really good job of is being really thoughtful about segmentation because, you know, if, if you're an enterprise customer that has more complexity or, you know, potentially more value to us, it's worth it for us to have a team that can help steer you in the right direction and answer, you know, a more complicated set of questions that you have. And so we have a group of, uh, of advocates that we now call enterprise advocates that we, be, we began to grow maybe about four years ago that focuses uh, with the channel on kind of really complex large customers. But, you know, we add... 5,000 new customers a quarter, like net new customers. And right. so if you look at, at just the kind of velocity of new customers that we're acquiring and and adding to the, you know, the base of 120,000 cu- customers now, it would be very difficult to do that if we could only service that customer through touch. And so, you know, we we had to focus on Uh, building efficiency in the model where most customers, if they wanted to go all the way through, they could. We wouldn't kind of get in their way. And so we've thought a lot about it as like, you know, a lot of companies, it's a little bit less common today than than it was when we started. But a really common kind of friction point that people insert is cost. You know, I'm actually not going to share with you how much the product costs or there's going to be sort of this contact. sales now. Yeah, contact us to find out the cost. And I think the, you know, the the... Psychology there is, is I don't want to scare the customer away potentially with a high price point mm-hmm. before I can explain to them what this could really do and understand their problems and try to persuade them that it's going to be worth that ultimate cost. In our model, like we've focused on sort of removing prices as a potential point of friction. And so even at the upper end, our products are pretty reasonable mm-hmm. relative to a competitor or an alternative or potentially what you're spending today. And so that aids velocity. It means that you know, even an enterprise customer, an enterprise company, it's value. In us could spend less than 10000 dollars could spend, could start with a team of, you know, 10 or a team of 50 and get going without actually needing us. They if they don't need us, it's great. Like right. we'll leave you alone. If you do need, do you need us, then we'll absolutely bend over backwards to help.
0: And you kind of touched on it earlier in terms of this sort of shift in, in buying behavior over the past sort of like 10, 15 years. Do you think the low-touch sales model could have worked maybe 30, 40 years ago? Or do you think it's something unique to how people buy today?
1: Well, in software, I think it's unique to how people buy today. It's unique to kind of the properties of SaaS in general and e-commerce. I mean, 30 years ago, like you you couldn't have bought something online because it, it just wasn't possible. Right, And so... You know, and I think there are other mechanisms that were really important for kind of our early growth. We were founded in 2002, basically at the advent of AdWords. And so AdWords was a way for us to, you know, reach segments of the market where we weren't physically and where we could market to customers at kind of the, the point of discovery or the point of pain that they were trying to identify, and then you know e-commerce was a way that we, and and basically distributing our products online through the internet was a way that we could reach customers in different different geographies without going the traditional route that you would have thirty years ago, which is like ah, I actually need a I need people there. Um, there's no way to kind of reach them online, and I think. Mm-hmm. You know the the properties of the model that we've really invested in are again sort of like removing that that friction. Like, how do we figure out where a customer is stuck? Mm-hmm. Why did they get stuck there? You know, we 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 talked, you know, a number of years ago about we sort of think of the funnel as products, and you know potentially when a customer raises their hand, it's sort of a you know contrarian way to think about it. Potentially, if they contact you and they're like, "Actually, I need need to talk to you," that's a bug. Mm-hmm. Like, why why did they need to talk to us? Like, right. It could be a legitimate reason, and it could be one that we choose not to invest in overcoming. That we can overcome that actually with just great sales or great customer service or an indirect channel. But if you are being contacted thousands of times by companies that are trying to understand something that's a very simple answer to a question, and if you give them that answer, they're actually just going to become a customer. Right. You do that all day. That's a bug. Mm. You'd be like, ah, oh, I should fix that. And I think a lot of young SaaS companies potentially have that same opportunity, but they don't think about it that way. And, and maybe, you know, they see that customer raising their hand as a feature, like you've just qualified yourself as a lead and I'm, I'm going to work it. And, and I, I think it sort of depends on a lot of different, you know, business and sales models. I think there's a lot of chemistry involved in, you know, the product, the size of the market, the problem that you're solving, the price point you're solving for. And, you know, every business is unique and you have to think about the blend of, of all of those ingredients and how they kind of work to support the business model that you're building. But, right. you know, we think business model is as important as your product and market, mm-hmm. you know, like look at Tesla, like Tesla is a great company, great products, but they're innovating around the business model of how automobiles are sold. And, you know, there's some things that, that they're doing that we also believed in. Like we believed early on that everybody should pay the same price. And uh, if you think about Tesla, like that's actually... I think that's a huge advantage for Tesla. The fact that that you know, if you buy a Tesla car, you're going to pay the same. You and I are going to pay the same. You right. know, if it's thirty-four grand or if it's one hundred thirty-four, whatever the the price is, like you're not going to get a better deal than I'm going to get. And actually, that's what irritates me about buying a car: is I don't know if I'm getting screwed. And a different I
0: th- person comes in a lot different yeah. price.
1: And I think software has some of those same properties. Mm. Where you know, I think what most customers want is they just want to know that they're treated fairly. And so early on, you know, even with, with our sales organization, our sales organization doesn't discount or negotiate terms and conditions. Sure. Um, Because, you know, we wouldn't want one company to, you know, to have a, Kind of end up in a different position than another one,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. and
1: and uh, once you, you start
0: opening those floodgates as well, you yeah, know, there's all sorts of deals. And I think it creates
1: yeah. unfairness and imbalance. Sure, and, and so and that's a, a point of friction that we were able to sort of move out of our model and back to high velocity and low touch. I think we're we don't spend a lot of time um, going back and forth on, we don't spend any, I'm going back and forth on contract terms or, you know, can I put, pay this instead of that? And what if I, you know, buy three years in advance instead of, you know, one year, can I get it better? Like that's super time consuming. And by the way, for the right product in the right segment, it could be also valuable, but it's very difficult to do that and maintain velocity.
0: Sure. And, I wonder, is this sort of culture of kind of fairness and transparency, something that sort of flows right through Atlassian, even beyond pricing, just in general in the company culture?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. I think, I think from, you know, the company's early history, it, it's, you know, one of our values is open company, no bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of rooted in that value that that if you think about commercially, if I'm, you know, giving one company a better deal just because they asked or because they drove a harder bargain or because maybe I was a little bit more desperate at the time. There can be a lot of factors. I'm not really being open. And there's like a little bit of bullshit there, mm. you know, potentially for, you know, other companies. And so I think it's kind of rooted pretty deep in our our culture and our value system.
0: Sure. And I think one interesting thing to note, I think is about the low-touch sales model is a lot of companies, let's say like Zendesk, an example, you know, adopted that low-touch sales model and then sort of brought in sales you know, a little bit later. Is that something that Atlassian has done successfully as well? And is there a particular, you know, sort of inflection point that you think is necessary to actually, you know, supplement the low-touch sales model with a sort of more fleshed-out sales team?
1: Well, we've, you know, we've always expanded and evolved Mm -hmm. the model. And so I mentioned Enterprise Advocates when we introduced, Mm -hmm. you know, a really premium, complex um, enterprise product that was an upgrade path to some of our largest customers. Mm -hmm. You know, we expanded our advocate team to have, a different sales team that would focus on that opportunity for this really valuable segment of the market that we wanted to to kind of help expand them. But again, that, that team doesn't discount, like we don't discount, we don't negotiate terms and conditions. We don't create, you know, kind of artificial compelling events um, in a sales cycle, but we're absolutely focused on helping a customer understand that there's a thing that they haven't, that we can offer them that can provide we think a lot of value to what they're trying to use our products to do that they should deeply consider and that we can help explain that and sort of like map to what their needs are. And then we've also had the channel, I think, which is an important part of our touch sales model, uh, where there could be, you know, sort of ways of buying in non-English speaking markets, there could be a lot more complexity there's sort of a you know a value ad- added service opportunity where there could be consulting involved mm-hmm. because some of the ways that our products are used and the things that we're displacing you know it's not as simple as just you know I sign up turn the account on and away I go i've got 10 years of you know either legacy technology or antiquated ways of working or change management that I need to think through in addition to just turning on the the new feature set that Atlassian's going to give Right, me.
0: there's like organize, organizational change that has to happen as well. Sometimes totally. if you're adopting new technologies. Totally, so. and so
1: I think that's a, an opportunity where we invested really early mm-hmm. on in building kind of an economy of partners that could help service that particular segment of the market and potentially allow us to kind of maintain efficiency. Like, you know, when you look at that, irrespective of whether, you know, we have salespeople or no salespeople, I think, you know, when you look at the amount of money that we spend as a percentage of revenue in sales and marketing, we are extremely efficient and it's, it's afforded us the ability to spend a lot more on what we think is more meaningful to our long-term growth, which is R and D and product innovation and new capability that we'll need in the business, both in terms of product and in terms of, you know, model. Right. Um, how do we continue to build a, you know, a better world-class e-commerce system that you know where we can operate uh, an online an online e commerce experience like eBay or Amazon would like an e-commerce company would right. and you know that requires a lot of investment and thinking for you know for a b two b software company
0: cool. so I mean, final question, I'm just wondering if you're like another entrepreneur deciding whether to adopt the same sort of low touch sales model as lasting did. what are sort of the high level key takeaways that you know someone should consider? A lot of it is factored
1: around market. And how you want to reach that market and price point and, you know, and then patience. Mm. You know, we are, as a company, if you look back outside of maybe the first handful of years when you went from a couple hundred thousand to your first million, our growth rate as a company has largely been between 30 and 50% consistently over 15 years. Mm. And so we were, you know, the, the common SaaS pattern or the desirable SaaS pattern is the triple, triple, double, double, right. double, double. And we never really did that. And so we sort of stabilized in into this, you know, I think it's still admirable growth rate, especially at scale. But part of it is because we were building this high-velocity flywheel. And we were patient when we entered an organization like the biggest company on the planet, like we could enter through a team and we could, because, you know, we are selling collaboration software, there's sort of built-in network properties in the product where a team of 10 can be get, another team of 10 can be get, a team of 100 can be get, a team of 1,000.
0: Right. And then just click your fingers and it's all going to be, you know, all the products will be adopted straight away. So. Well, it takes time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But the, the alternative is to say, well, I'm going to try to go from 100 to 1,000 faster with a lot more investment and in energy and selling and convincing and mapping, you know, going from department to department to department and saying, Hey, do you know Bob over here? And we, we're, we're, we're a little more patient. We Mm -hmm. wait for that to happen. Right. And then we invest in, you know, in triggers and capability in the product to basically encourage and accelerate that kind of expansion adoption of the account without a lot of investment in persuading or, or or selling. And so I, I, I guess I would start with, you know, if I were, Workday, as an example, and you know when I look at my market as the 2,000 biggest companies on the planet, mm. like I don't think Atlassian's model is appropriate for that. Right? You know, Workday is sort of a single, largely top-down decision. You know, like you're not going to pick multiple human resource management systems. You're going to pick one, and it's going to be sponsored by the head of HR and probably the CIO. That is a top-down, very consultative, probably long sales cycle. That's not a Kind of try, buy, begin, and expand. Right. Yeah, and so I think as a founder of a company, you need to think about all those things. And you know, some of it is going to be competitive dynamic too, right? If if you're in a market where the advantages that you have from a product and feature perspective, or f- from a pricing perspective, are you know they're they're not that profound against the against competitors in your market, potentially sales needs to be an advantage mm-hmm. and how effective you are at selling and entering. And you could go the other way and say like, I'm actually going to attack selling with more efficiency, mm-hmm. but potentially to do that, you need to change the dynamic of your pricing and how that's calibrated against competitors. There's a, it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, my word of caution is you can't, I think you can't look at Atlassian and say, I'm just going to do it the way they did. Because sure. I think there were, there were many things that enabled us to build the model in the way that we did um, over time that for a lot of companies might not work.
0: Okay. Well, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.
1: This is Inside Intercom.